Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. Today, we are going to talk to someone who's got a harrowing story about survivorship and thriving thereafterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared in our podcast can be graphic in nature. We do recommend you review the details of our podcast before tuning in. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. Welcome everyone to our next episode of Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories. Today I'm super excited to introduce to you Neka McGregor and Shanila who work together at Women at the Center and actually host their own podcast as well. So to kick it off, I am going to introduce or give them the opportunity to introduce themselves um, before we get started today. I also want to start by giving everyone a content warning. Some of the things we'll be discussing today are very uh, sensitive in nature. So just be aware of that when you are endeavoring listening to our podcast episode today. So if you guys can go ahead and kick it off. Sure. Uh, Good morning. And thank you so much, Amy, for inviting us to um, appear on your podcast. My name, as you said, is Neka McGregor, and I am the executive director and founder of a small but mighty kick-ass organization called the Women's Center for Social Justice, Mm -hmm. or better known as Women at the Center. And uh, the organization was started in 2008, was incorporated as a nonprofit organization, and to date, we remain the only, still the only non-profit organization that's incorporated by and for uh, women uh, survivors of all forms of gender-based violence. I, too, am a survivor. And as we get into our conversation, you'll, I think you'll understand a little bit more why I started the organization. I'm Shalina. I work uh, with NECA at Women at the Center. I'm a project coordinator there for a research initiative that we have been doing for the past three years, which was looking and building an alternative model of justice for sexual assault survivors. So I've kind of had my mind in this world for the past three years uh, professionally, but I also am a survivor of sexual violence as well. Awesome. So I'm going to start a little bit by touching on your both of your stories, and maybe we'll go around the table and talk a little bit about it. As you both know, uh, first episode of my podcast was my story, but um, these types of things are very, very uh, near and dear to my heart because I want to reiterate to all the listeners here how important it is to look at situations when you're in them and understand the different perspectives of individuals around the world and how they've survived and how they're thriving now. So I do want to start, uh, perhaps Neka, you can kick it off. Just talk a little bit about your story in terms of, let's start like, you know, childhood up, how your childhood was, um, how things looked while you were growing up, maybe what your influencing factors were, and then really what your experience was going into your marriage. So I, I'm, I'm Nigerian. I was born in Nigeria and um, my father had left in sort of the early 60s to left Nigeria to go to the UK to study law. And after a couple of years, I was born in 60, 1963, that 
really ages me. Well, it dates me. It doesn't age me. It dates me. <laughs> but uh, my dad had left uh, Nigeria in, I think, 19, December of 62. And I was born in January of 63. And I, at the time, I was the fourth child, the youngest. My dad left to go study. Uh, I was about a year and a half. My mother went to on vacation, on vacation to visit him in London. Then sort of the civil war in Nigeria broke out. Um, and it was really difficult, obviously, for people to come in and out of the country. But we, my sisters and my brother and I were very fortunate because we had family members, my uncle, who was in politics and an aunt who worked for the Red Cross, who sort of facilitated our escape from Nigeria, the Biafran War, to go to the UK. So we got to the UK like late 60s, mm -hmm. late 60s. Um, by the time we got there, my mother had had another child, my youngest brother, who is absolutely awesome. Um, and my childhood was really, in the beginning, odd to describe. I, I don't remember much of, of it. Uh, what I do, I can say, is that my mom died when I was relatively young. I was at around 11, 11, 12. My mother passed away. I'm sorry to hear and, that. Yeah. But I was raised by what I can say was an honestly badass father. He was phenomenal. He, I talk about my dad as the first feminist in my life, who at a time in England in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where racism was rampant and discrimination against obviously race, anti-black racism was rampant, sort of a gender bias towards girls, preference towards boys and against girls was rampant. But my dad, even though he was an African man, firmly believed in education for daughters. He firmly believed that his daughters were every bit as brilliant as his sons and actually believed that one of my sisters, one of the twins, would be, um, she was going to be the first black prime minister of the United Kingdom. So, yeah, so I was raised in a household where I was told I could do anything. I was told I could be anything. And I was honestly loved and protected by the men in my family, my, my dad and my brothers. I went, I studied law. Uh, I went to a convent, first of all, I was in a convent school for mm -hmm. a long time, but went to university, read law, and that was where I met my ex-husband, which is my third day of university. And um, we didn't date until sort of the, my second year. And it was really when the dating started that things became challenging, to put it uh, you know, mildly, it became challenging. And I had never, I wasn't really used to, I'd never dated anybody. Um, and I wasn't used to the idea of a partner hitting, I was smacked as a kid, I think we, most of us were, I was smacked by my dad. But uh, the idea of me being abused by somebody who is sort of my age, who was supposed to be equal, it was a foreign, foreign concept to me. So it took a little, it took a minute for me to, to really get, used to what was happening but then you sort of you're living through this catholic mindset that you know you're you're married you're in a relationship you you have children you can't you can't leave because you you have an obligation which was utter nonsense to me intellectually mm -hmm. and practically but i just think it was a social um, pressures that made me stay and i was constantly grappling with you know, how do I, how do I keep myself safe? How do I keep my children safe? How do I, and, and then maintain the relationship? I should say that uh, 
after we had two kids in England, um, my eldest daughter, who is a goddess, she's just brilliant. My son, who is just absolutely brilliant. We came to Canada in 1992 when my, our son was six months and started a company. We, we actually owned a company in the UK together. Both of us were entrepreneurial, made lots and lots of money. It was really, really positive in the, in the professional sense, but just the, the home sense was where the dysfunction resided. Yeah. Anyway, we moved to Canada in 92, started another company, very successful here, um, had our third child, and the violence continued. But I sort of looked at it that I was managing. I had a way to keep everything going, right? On to, so to the outside world, everything was perfect. I tried very hard to inoculate my children from witnessing it. And, and I think to a large extent, it was pretty successful because I, I talked... I've spoken to my kids over the years about the violence and what they saw. They didn't see a lot, but they definitely saw something. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, kids are, kids know something's wrong, even if they're not seeing the violence it's, itself. I wanted to just ask you very quickly, did the violence start during your, like before the marriage or like, how would you describe it as, as you became yeah. married and, and it progressed? It, it started before the marriage. You were dating. And now I know, right, now that I'm in the sector and I understand the cycle yeah. of, of abuse, that there is there's sort of this build-up stage. You don't have to do anything in order to trigger it. Something is going on in his head. Yeah. And he, he takes it out. He, he explodes and takes it out on you. And then there is the, you know, the makeup. He promises he won't do it again. He's extremely contrite and very sorry. Yeah. In phase. And then it just repeats. So you just rinse and repeat and the cycle continues. So how many years was this going on by the time that we're getting to the point you're going to talk about? We were together for 19 years. Okay. And in that time, I think one of the, again, I recognize it now because I'm in the sector, but the isolation. So we moved. All my social supports were in England. I I come from a very, very close-knit family. I have, as I said, two older sisters. I had one of them passed away in 2016. Sorry. Um, but my, yeah, my sisters were phenomenal, right? They, they, they became my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my older brother was absolutely very, very protective. My younger brother was very protective. So I came from a very close-knit, very protected uh, family unit. Mm-hmm. And my dad being sort of the center of all of it. What tends to happen is that they, abusers, will figure out ways to alienate and to isolate you from your family and your social support. So we, we emigrated, we moved to Canada and it didn't break my, my bond with my family, but it, it made it that much more difficult to reach out and to connect with, with my sisters and my brother and my dad. So the isolation became a huge part of it. And I had no, none of my friends were here. Yeah. My children didn't have cousins and, you know, so it was a very, very, very closed uh, community. And whilst I, we, we had a company and I had staff, but you don't, you can't tell your staff, right? What's happening. No, of course. And, and my staff and I were again close because I have that type of relationship and Shalina can talk about that. Yeah. I have that type of relationship with the, the people that I work with, but you can't disclose that type of goings on, especially when you are the boss, right? You're the yeah. employer. Yeah. So it was really difficult. Yeah. So it was 19 years that we were together and 
it was interesting. I have to say, and this is again in the spirit of transparency and honesty, it wasn't all horrible. It was not all violent all the time. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this later on, but I, I, I move now in the world from a place of, of forgiveness, right? And forgiveness is not that we get back together and it's all lovey-dovey. It's forgiveness. Understand that he, these abusive men themselves were probably abused and hurt yeah. themselves. Yeah. And so one of my staff used to say all the time about how hurt people hurt people. And I understand that, but it doesn't excuse or justify because the fact that I was hurt, I didn't then go out and hurt other people, right? So exactly. there are ways you can control and and figure out ways to get support. So yeah, but yeah, I've I've moved beyond the anger, which actually fueled me. I I, I love my anger. I I really really loved my anger, and I still get angry about stuff that's happening. Right. And I, I, I don't I don't agree with people who say that anger is a is a bad thing. I think it can be a really transformative healing cloak that you wear through life that sort of galvanizes and motivates you to do something. So I think I think that's a really, really important point to talk about because anger does fuel change. And it's really the expression of the anger, right? That uh, that determines whether it's healthy or unhealthy anger. Sure. And I agree with you. I think there's a lot that goes on in the situation, like the one that you describe, including grief, right? Grieving a relationship when you have to end it. What was the moment where you said, this is it, I'm going to end it now? It wasn't just one moment. Uh, and I don't, I think if you ask other survivors, that women will say there were many times that you yeah. ended it, right? And yeah. it happened many times. But um, the final straw for me was I was about to turn 40. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how much we can talk about sort of personal stuff. I was about to you turn can talk 40. about whatever you want. And this is an adult show. <laughs> <laughs> it's an adult, adult show. But it, it, was, it was really about um, sexual experiences. Yeah. Right? I'd, I'd had one partner. I was wondering what all the fuss was about. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I, I was thinking to myself, you can't, you can't die, of, you know, not ever just being with one really... person. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, not just about the being, but just not knowing what yeah measures of relationships could be, right? So that was that was sort of a, a mm-hmm, aha moment for me. At the time, my eldest was um, my eldest daughter was around thirteen, fourteen. My son. They're five years apart. I did family planning, five years apart. So my eldest was around 14. My baby uh, was around four and my son was around nine. And so I was thinking to myself, I don't want the children, my daughters starting off to think that this is what relationships look like because there was very little affection that was was on display. And my ex-husband you know, no judgment, but just wasn't a very demonstrative. T- I, I hug. Shalina will tell you, I hug everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very expressive, and I love being hugged. And I hug my children all the time. I hug my team, but I, I just wasn't getting that. And I didn't want my children to think that men were not huggers. My father was a hugger, right? My yeah. brothers. I wanted my daughters to have a, an understanding of what healthy relationships looked like. And, and the reciprocity in it. And I also wanted my son to understand that being a man 
right, is not about hiding your emotions. It's not about not crying. It's not about shouting. Men can be emotionally sensitive and emotionally present. In fact, my son is extremely, extremely empathetic. His empathy radar is off the scale. I'd say it's actually more than his sister's. Yeah. So I, I was I was sort of looking at the dynamics in my own personal relationship with their dad and trying to understand what the messaging to the children around what healthy relationships look like. And I thought, yeah, this it, it's not working. This is not what it what it should be. This is not what I think it should be and what it could be. And so I wanted to find a way to amicably that we could all you know live our lives and yeah. We have three amazing, uh, amazing children. That doesn't, you know, have to change. We have a company together. We can divide the company in ways that doesn't have to change. Your ideas about how the world can work is not necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily mesh with their ideas. And yeah. what I've subsequently found out again through the work is that separation, that point of separation, is potentially the most lethal time for women it's the time when the violence escalates it's a time when women are most likely to be murdered yes and it's about power and control right the partner feels that his power over her is is being lost and I just want to take an aside Amy because as we're recording this what your viewers listeners might not know in other countries Mm -hmm. is that on the over the weekend we had a horrific mass murder um, in Nova Scotia, a province in in Canada, where a man went and killed, I think, latest count of 22 people. Yes, it's 22. And it started 22. And he started off by the first people he killed was his ex-wife and her new boyfriend. And so trying to explain to people the whole thing about saying to women, why don't you just leave, right? Just leave. If you leave, you're, you're somehow at fault for staying. Yeah. But you, the society doesn't recognize that that point of leaving and telling women to leave and go somewhere. Leaving doesn't mean that you're, you're safe. Leaving oftentimes exactly. actually means that she's, she's at uh, greater risk. Interesting times <laughs> in my life as I try to navigate not just the separation, but raising three children to be grounded, kind, compassionate, intelligent, present human beings in the midst of my own trauma, right? In the midst of all the family court process, the criminal court process. We're in in civil courts as well because he refused to share the company that we we both started. And so it was was a challenging time. Mm -hmm. It really was a challenging time. Well, thanks for sharing, Neka. Um, Shalina, can you walk us through your story from childhood onwards, very much like Neka did? So I was born, I guess. Um, <laughs> and my mom was with my biological dad at the time, mm-hmm. who was incredibly abusive. And so after they had me, the abuse started, I guess, like leaking out. And I think once my mom uh, kind of had like the protection towards me, she realized that she needed to leave. I think a year, she gave him like a year to change. And so like abuse wasn't one of the things, like it was only one of the things he was doing. He was also cheating. Uh, He also was a substance user. And so she gave him a year. And then after that year, when he didn't change, 
she left. So she got up, she left and she moved in with her parents. Mm -hmm. So I was brought up with my nanny and my papa and my mom all in one house. They tried to do visitation with him. And as soon as my mom stopped coming, uh, because my mom and my nanny and papa were both foster parents. So uh, when my mom would go, all he would do is talk to my mom about getting back together. Yeah. And so my mom stopped going and she would send me with one of the uh, foster kids. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he realized that my mom wasn't coming, he stopped coming. There was one incident where him or a friend threw water in my face when I was like very little. And um, so then there was a court order that he wasn't allowed to see me until I was 18. That ended that. And then my, my papa and nanny became uh, parents in a way. And my papa became like the one, which is my mom's dad, became like the one kind of very influential, very impactful man that I had in my life. Mm -hmm. And so when I think back to my childhood, like he is the one man that stands out that was always there and really had me as, you know, his kind of number one. My mom remarried when I was about five or six, uh, to another man. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, my papa died. And so I think that was me feeling like another loss of a man in my life, even though I was very young for the first one. My mom's relationship with uh, her next partner was very dysfunctional. Uh, They had my sister. And then there was a lot of emotional abuse that happened and financial abuse throughout the relationship. And so... How old were you by this point? Uh, so this would have been like from when I was six mm-hmm. to when I was 12, okay. they were married. And so, yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of abuse happening and we, we were very aware of, I guess my sister wasn't, we kind of had a conversation about this on one of our podcasts, yeah. but uh, I was very aware in a different way because I was older. Mm-hmm. And so we had bought a sword from medieval times. I would hide it under my bed. And all of those things. So like all of the things that I did, I can look back and see that I was, I was very afraid that it was going to become physical. And so, yeah, like I was definitely trying to protect my mom. I was definitely trying to protect my sister always. And then we had someone move in with us. So we, we had horses and we lived on a farm. Okay. Um, And so we had met a woman at the time named Anna and she started living with us and boarding her horse, like in our backyard, my mom and Anna developed a relationship. And so they took me aside one day, like in a car and they said, my mom is going to leave Jim. And I was like, great about time. Like, let's get this movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I've been on this train for a while and you guys yeah. are just hopping on. So like, yeah. I'm glad Anyway, we left. We left and uh, the police were called one night because things were getting physical when my mom was trying to leave. Yeah. So it didn't escalate. And, but everybody was there. And so everyone was trying to keep everybody safe and everyone was crying and things like that. So the police were called. The police uh, took my dad away and said, you have one night uh, to get all your stuff out. And like, that's it. We packed. We packed as much as we could. And like, I think my mom did a lot of things back then that, attempted to give me a semblance of a childhood. So like that night there was a school dance and I was in grade nine. Yeah. And so that was super important to me, right? Because of course. it was a school dance. Mm-hmm. And so while my mom and Anna and my sister are packing, they drove me to a school dance so that I 
I could dance with my friends. So I think even like in those moments when you're trying to give me a sense of childhood and a sense of the normal things. So yeah, she tried to do that for sure. And then we left that night. We ended up in a shelter, um, all four of us and Alliston. And then we lived in Orangeville. And so my mom wanted to get back to Orangeville because our horses were here and all of those things. Anyway, when we tried to come to the family transition place here in Orangeville, they wouldn't let Anna in. So they were not supportive of um, queer relationships at the time and same-sex relationships. And although Anna wasn't the abuser, uh, my dad was, uh, it didn't make a difference. And so Anna had to stay in Alliston and then we moved to Orangeville because there wasn't enough room in any of the places. So that was a bit of a problematic thing with like shelters and stuff. I noted that that it's changed since then, uh, but it definitely made an impact on our navigation through leaving and, and through having support. And and this um, wasn't that long ago. Like what year would this, or approximately when would this have been? Oh my gosh. Uh, 2002. Yeah. We were at a shelter for, I don't know, maybe about a week or two. And then my mom realized that she couldn't, have us living completely separately that obviously her and Anna wanted to be together and it was going to be better for Rochelle and I to have that family. And so we moved into a motel uh, because house that quickly and all of those things. So we moved into a motel and we lived in a motel for about a month. And during that time, my mom was like in and out of the court with my dad. Uh, We had four animals at the time. And we had them in the ho- in the motel with us. And then we had them, we took them to the courthouse with us because we couldn't leave them in the motel because they would bark and do all these things. And when my dad was there, he stole uh, one of the dogs out of the back of the truck. So like when I say it wasn't physical, but there was like mind games happening yes. and there was a lot of emotional abuse. Those are the types of things that were happening. But that's, that is abuse, right? Like yeah. absolutely. Yeah. He also like, came into one of the courtrooms where we were meeting with a lawyer and came in bawling and crying. And he was very manipulative with other people around Mm -hmm. to try to make them feel bad for him. Yeah. Where like we knew what was going on and like what kind of games he was playing. And so it was, it was just that like my whole life. Anyway, we ended up moving into a house uh, with Anna and then my mom and Anna were together for about 11 years, which is a big chunk. That's a, that's made a huge influence on my life. I'm a part of the queer community. I identify as pansexual. I'm sure that had something to do with it. Right now I'm in a polyamorous relationship with uh, my husband of 14 years and another man. And I'm a huge advocate for uh, queer and trans communities. And because of that, that has made one of the biggest influences and impacts on my life. And then when I was, I had just moved out uh, with my husband. So I think I was like 23. They broke up because Anna wanted to transition. So Anna identified as trans um, and kind of like came to that, not slowly, but I guess eventually, and then wanted to transition into a man. And I think that's where there was issues between Anna and my mom. And so now Anna goes by Dan. And Anna has transitioned into a he. But yeah, that's kind of my childhood. So I want to I wanna talk a little bit now about, you know, coming out of these situations, what have you guys been able to do for yourselves in healing? Um, and what would you recommend to others who've experienced these types of situations on how they can heal and uh, perhaps what resources you used as well? It's a great question uh, for many reasons. First of all, there are many uh, avenues 
to to healing. I, I call it the the sort of the trauma continuum, the healing continuum. Yeah. And and that there are times where you think that you're you're good, and then something happens that sort of triggers, right, or, or puts you sets you right right back. So trying to carve out a path that works for you, right, that is sort of customized for you, is one of the things that I tell our members, I tell survivors all the time. There isn't one size fits all, one particular path that you take and then at the end of the line, you know, and you're going you're gonna to find it. You have to navigate it yourself. There are many ways you do it. There are many people who can support you. I got into advocacy. Mm-hmm. I was actually, <laughs> we're in the middle of just the beginnings of the, the court process. And my dad, I used to buy these $5 phone cards. Yeah. And call England. Five dollars will get you, I don't know, six hours on the phone. So I'd I would I'd call my dad, I'd call then I'd call the twins together, and then I would with my dad, I would, you know, be strategically thinking about what I should be doing. With my sisters, I'd be crying and yeah. swearing. <laughs> yeah. I'd be swearing and effing and blinding. And then, you know, I'll get get back to my to my dad. My I remember one particular day, my father said to me, and I was crying when I was talking to him. He, he waited and he said, have you finished? And I said, what? He said, crying. I said, yes. He said, then do something. And I thought, okay. He said, you can cry, you can cry, you can cry, but you have to do something. You have to do something about it because sitting in your, clo- your closet and crying isn't going to solve it. And then I thought, okay, that, that's fair, right? And he said, he would say to me, don't get into mischief. Whatever you do, don't get into mischief. Because one of my sisters would advocate mischief. Yeah. And her twin twin would say, no, we cannot do that. (laughs) So we all agreed that I should go and sort of do my master's. So I applied to Osgood Hall to do my master's in law. Mm -hmm. I got into Osgood. And then one day sitting in the carol, you know, the little cubicle. Yeah. Business. There was an email that came up to all the grad students that was asking for an organization called the Women Abuse Council of Toronto was looking for supports. They were doing a a court watch, a domestic violence court watch, and they were looking for people to become court watchers. And I thought, oh, I can do do that. I can do that. So I reached out to the executive director there, whose name is Vivian Green, and she is my girl crush of all times. Um, She invited me for an interview I show up at their office, which is a tiny little basement hovel. She says to me, you're a survivor? I said, yes. And she said, well, we have a, a committee called the Accountability Committee. And it's made up of women survivors. And they meet once a month and they review policies and programs and stuff. And they give input from survivors. And I thought, where do I sign on? So that was my foray into advocacy. And as I was working volunteering with the Women Abuse Council Accountability Committee. And I, I put it down to my very dulcet tones, my accent, the English accent, and the fact that I, you know, there's this law to do a master's. Every time they wanted, the, the media wanted to speak to a survivor, they'd pop out Neck and McGregor. Out, out, <laughs> out, out I'd come. And the more I spoke, right, the more I, I spoke on television, the more I spoke at conferences, the more I, I facilitated training, the more impactful, I could see what I was doing was having an impact. And it was helping me as well, because I was feeling strong about it. And it was a a way, a place for me to channel 
my anger, as well as all the expertise that I was, I had gained as a result of navigating the violence. That's as well as I was seeing that was wrong in the family courts, how um, what I was seeing was wrong in the criminal courts, how family courts would give, you know, the abuser access to children. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Shalini was alluding to it, right? Yeah. But family courts would give him access and then the criminal courts would deny him access. Yeah. Yeah. So you had these two conflicting systems. Yes. That weren't talking to each other. It was, it just made no sense. And the more I intellectually thought about it and, and thought somebody needs to uproot this stuff, right? Somebody needs to figure out or tell them how they can do it better. I thought, if not us survivors, then who? So that was how I found my, I started my healing journey was I, I got into advocacy. And the more I spoke, no matter where I spoke, whether it's in the States, in the UK, all over Canada, every time I'd speak, I'd say, I'm a survivor because I was not ashamed of, the, of that word. I was not ashamed of the label because I didn't do anything wrong. No. So why would I be looked at as if I was, you know, the person that I, I didn't do anything wrong. So I would say I'm a survivor. I'm the expert. I know what the heck I'm talking about. You people need to listen. And they bloody well did. And I every time that. I finished, every time I'd finished speaking, women would come all all walks of life. Women would come and say, oh, my God, Necker, I'm a survivor. I want to do what you're doing. How, yeah. how, how do I get involved? How do I get involved? And so after a long minute, and come go back to Vivian, I, I sat with Viv, Vivian Green and I said to her, "I'm number one, I'm tired of people um, making survivors feel as if we are less than. Number two, we are the experts. And number three, how do we get a network? How do I get a network of survivors to be actually impacting the system? And she says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What, did your, what would your dad say? And I'd say, he'd say, do something. And yeah. so she said, well, then let's do something. So that's how we incorporated the, the women at the Cent- Women's Centre for Social Justice. Love it. Viv, Viv was a really, really great, great support, a great ally. She doesn't identify as a, as a survivor. She's been in the violence against women sector for 30 something years. Yeah. As a master's in social work like Shalina, but is a, absolutely grounded grounded human being who was one of the first VAW violence against women workers who said to me as a survivor what do you need and how can I help and I thought that's what people should be asking survivors yes not telling exactly not telling them what they need and what they should be doing right yeah that's beautiful it's advocacy that sort of saved my life it's it's kept me sane kept my sense of humor because I see utter bullshit that happens and then I'm able to sit with survivors and we unpack and come up with really strategic practical concrete ways to bring about change I love it Shalina I want to I want to hear your story now can I can I just say I'm so sorry and I I just want to say so we're going to I hope we're going to talk about the use of the word story because we don't we don't as an organization now, we don't, we don't use the word story. Okay. We, we call it declarations, right? Oh, interesting. I, I love I that. Know. Let's talk about that in a bit. Let's talk about exactly. that. And, and Shalina can, can expound on that. Okay. I think for childhood, like what I kind of went through in my childhood, 
I think I'm still on the journey. Like I'm not at all completely anywhere. I think that I don't think any of us really are. So I, yeah. I think I think it, the way to look at it is, you know, how are we? How do we go through our survivorship um, journey? And then what what are we doing to really address and realize what's happened to us? Because I think that's a huge aha for most people. But we're always mm-hmm. in that transition afterwards during our thriving period to always revisit, much like NECA said and a lot of the other survivors say who are on this podcast, that it's always a work in progress, right? To really mm-hmm. uh, revisit the different traumas as they come up, the things that we remember every now and then that we may have forgotten along the way and how we work to be able to address it in a healthy manner. Yeah. So I think that like, because it was two men in my life, like two very impactful men. Mm. um, I think that like that definitely created like an abandonment type of issue. What I like to kind of look at it as is there's a term called post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And there's something to do with the fact that we won't be the same person after it. I think even with like in Um, abusive situations, right? A lot of, we hear from a lot of survivors, like, I can't go back to the person I was before that abuse. And it's because we've grown so much. And although some of that horrific uh, experience shouldn't have had to happen in the first place, but we do get certain bits of learning from it. And we do kind of grow into a different person. And so I think with like childhood stuff, that comes up a bit. Um, I think even like, It takes a long time for me to trust like men in my life, but it's also understanding that that's, you know, kind of like where I've come from and those are my issues. And so like understanding that kind of what NECA said, like that those come up at different times in your life. Right. So I haven't really had that issue for a very long time because I've been with my husband for 14 years, but like bringing a new man into our marriage as like our boyfriend that created some like untrustworthiness again. Right. And yeah. And it's like, Oh, I'm still here. Got it. Right. Like I still have to deal with these things and stuff like that. <laughs> so um, I think just being like aware of it and understanding like what kind of impacts it has on you. I think that being a survivor of sexual violence, that has been a journey in itself. I know that for a long time, I don't think I could grasp the facts that I was a survivor of rape because of like one of the situations that happened, I was drunk. And so I didn't, I thought it was more of like, a, oh, I was drunk and I didn't really understand. And then doing work. So I went out, got my, I have a BA from Guelph in sociology and then a BSW for social work from Ryerson and then an MSW from Ryerson as well. So I think like that journey in itself has to do with, you know, who I am, kind of what my, how I was raised as well as like the things that happened to me along the way. So I think like taking, taking up those things and doing the fact that I'm in a job right now that has to do with sexual violence and has to do with creating a justice model for sexual violence. I think that tells you kind of where I am. I think yeah. that like, <laughs> my whole journey is trying to find justice for uh, survivors. And I think that that kind of shows that within my work is how I found justice within my work is how I've realized that I am a survivor. I think that understanding about um, so many things like consent being like the littlest and then like, you know, misogyny and like all of the structural issues being like the largest. I think that, when you understand as a woman how you navigate those things, I think I think we all come out understanding 
gendered violence in a new way. And so, yeah, so I think it's- I, I actually, I, I want to talk about that for a second. I want to talk about what we have been perhaps brought up in our culture to believe is normal as a woman and expectations that we should have of concepts like consent. Because I know you said that it's, it's a smaller part of this larger puzzle. But for me, being a mom and raising not only daughters, but a son as well, consent is such an important topic that I believe when I was being raised, and it's no fault of my parents, but it's also societal, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, don't poke the bear sort of thing. So can you talk a little bit about, about how you, your realization of the misogyny and the consent aspect and all the different parts of this puzzle that perhaps we know as women, but we don't act upon often enough? Yeah, I think that like consent needs to start with bodily autonomy when we're younger. And I don't think that a lot of us, especially in my generation, were taught that. I think that like now when you hear parents talking about children giving, having to give permission for a hug, even yeah. like if it's from a family member, I think learning about that and learning about bodily autonomy. I know my husband's a paramedic and one of his coworkers was teaching their children, you know, the body. And when they went into school, they were talking about a penis and the people called CAS thinking that this person had been, this child had been sexually assaulted because they knew what a penis was called. And then when they called and they realized that, you know, the dad was paramedic, the mom was a nurse. They were like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We've just taught like proper names so that (laughs) this person, like the child can be um, armored, right. With knowledge and with education. I think that's where it needs to start. I think bodily autonomy. I think even now we need to understand bodily autonomy as adults. And consent is, it is a very big issue. I think that in the whole three years that we've been doing our work, consent has come up so much. Yeah. <laughs> and consent is usually one of like the larger conversations. I think when we think about sexual violence, sometimes we think about the story that we've been told in the media, right? We, we think about stranger assault. We think about yeah. someone hiding in the bushes or in an alley and you walking late at home, late to home at night and someone jumping out and pouncing on you. And although that can happen, there are stranger assaults. The most of assaults are done by somebody that you know. And a lot of them have these issues of consent involved. And so whether it be substance that is there, whether it be like a power con- power and control issue of whether that person's your boss or things like that, there, there are so many issues that consent kind of revolves around that aren't just this or that, right? Yeah. I, and it's not about binaries. I think it is about the complexities involved in like every kind of sexual situation. Exactly, yeah. I 100% agree. Consent is a very, very integral issue, especially for all people to understand. And I think all people should be understanding it before even involving themselves in sexual situations. Agreed. I just, I, I, I completely agree. I, I just want to add uh, for listeners, one of the things that I, I told my children is trust in your intuition. And if, if it feels remotely odd, uncomfortable, you don't need to justify it to anybody. You don't need to explain it. So number one is understanding that you have a right. You, no matter how old you are, you have a right to refuse to smile, refuse to hug, refuse to sh- You have a right. That's, that's, that's your, Shalina's point about bodily autonomy. You have a right. Mm-hmm. The second part is to say to, to survivors that, and again, it, it goes back to what I was saying about shame and naming. 
to put the shame on the victim of the violence, I think is the most egregious thing that society does, right? To blame the victim for the sexual assault that somebody happened, you know, somebody did to her. Yeah. Instead of focusing on the aggressor, that every excuse society has so much time and energy on, well, what about his career? What's going to happen to It's not about him right now. It's about her. Yeah. And, and trying to get survivors to ditch the shame, right? It's not yours. It's not ours. We didn't do anything. No matter how short our skirt, no matter how much we drank, no matter how late at night, no matter where we were, no matter when you don't want it, when you say no, you have a right to say no. And he has a responsibility to respect and, and get the fuck off. Absolutely. The shaming point is just so important to talk about. And I think it takes a lot of people, uh, even myself, time to talk about your story when you feel that shame and you wonder what people, how people are going to react to your story. I think that understanding those things, I think that even doing this work in the past like three years has definitely like progressed my journey so much more. I also think that healing is when a lot of survivors get together and talk. I think when we are able to externalize the issue as opposed to internalizing it, I think that it does a lot inside our bodies. And so a part of this research, we did focus groups and one-on-one interviews. And so I got to sit in front of a lot of survivors and with a lot of survivors and talk about, you know, different declarations and different things that were happening and different reasonings of why people navigated the system the way they did or why they chose not to. I think that in those situations, as well as like now that my friends and people around me know that this is what I do for a living, I get a lot of disclosures as well, just like Neko was saying. So like been to, you know, some Christmas parties or things like that. When everyone else kind of starts to leave, I get a few people coming to me and being like, so this is what happened to me, right? And I think when we externalize it, when we when we talk openly about it, especially with survivors, because when you walk into a room and you know that in that room or with those people that your energy is safe, with those people, you're going to be believed. With those people, your actions aren't going to be questioned. I think those are the important things that that lay a foundation where healing can take place and healing can happen. I've been a part of that and also like facilitated those conversations. And so I think that's definitely been a part of uh, my journey. That's awesome. And I, I want to touch on, on your use of the word declarations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can I start? Yeah. <laughs> so there, we have a wonderful, a wonderful colleague. Her name is Shirley Brookstra. She, um, she's a nurse. She used to be the manager of the, of the sexual assault uh, care center at Scarborough Grace Hospital many years ago. She's now retired. And I've been working, Shirley's been working with with me and with the organization right from the beginning, like almost 17 years mm-hmm. I've known her. In the last 10 years, we've been doing research together. We did re- research on strangulation, which was still the only one in the Canadian context. Women, survivors experience of being strangled by an intimate partner. And then Shirley is also one of the researchers for this transformative accountability and justice initiative that Shalina is talking about. Yeah. And so in one day, we we were looking at all the data, our kaleidoscape of data, and we kept on dropping the women's stories. And Shirley said, you know, I hate that word story. Story implies that it's made up. It's a fabricated thing. Right. And, And it's a story that people tell 
I hate the word story. And exactly. when we use the word story, it perpetuates the idea that women make up the, the sexual, sexual assault. Shirley said, uh, we need to find a, a new word. So we all looked, we both looked at Shalina and said to her, Shalina, project coordinator, you, you go and, and coordinate, find us a new word that yeah. we can use instead of the word story. So over to you, Shalina. So I went away and did like the mighty Thor, uh, thesaurus and tried to, like we knew what we wanted to say, but we yeah. obviously didn't have the word to say it. And so I was able to go look up some things and we had things come out. Like I had things come out like testimony and things like that. And you know, that has a religious context. It also yes. has a legal context. And so we didn't want anything that already kind of made you think of something, right? Like put you in a certain arena, right? And it's important, right? Like language is, is a tool that we use to communicate things. And so if that tool isn't working properly or that tool skews an idea for somebody, then foundationally we need to remove that tool and mm-hmm. replace it. And so what we did is I found declaration. When I looked at declaration, the things that were kind of like beside it or the examples of it, I saw a declaration of war within the Me Too amphitheater where it was like, yeah, you know what? survivors right now are in war. We're going to war with whether it be media, whether it be um, the aggressor, whether it be, you know, the public for the public to hear us and the public to understand. One of the things that made me go with declaration, I also heard like declaration of independence. Um, when somebody like very important makes like an announcement and it's called like a declaration. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, this is gonna, this is gonna work. <laughs> it's gonna work perfectly. <laughs> and so I went back I said, you know, these are a couple of things that I found, but I, I'm going with declaration. What do you guys think? And so everybody was on board. We've kind of used declaration in everything, like in the report that we're writing for the three-year project, it's called Declarations of Truth, our podcast, What's Your Safe Word, Declarations of Resistance. And we have found that when we talked, we didn't have that word with the one-on-one interviews, but in the focus groups we did. And we told them right after that we we're calling them declarations. The feedback that we got and the feedback that we get everywhere when we kind of do what we just did to you and be like, oh, we actually don't use stories anymore. <laughs> and I um, love that. Like, I, I feel like it's, it's really going to help me evolve as well and share this word with others because that is a, a pain point that I had too, right? There's limitation of English language words mm-hmm. that can really describe what it is that we experience and to keep the truth intact, right? To keep a person's mm-hmm. uh, validity intact is so important. And it doesn't sound debatable, right? No. Like a story is debatable. A story can be a fairy tale. A story can be all of these things. But a declaration, like you're like, oh, yeah, I'm listening. Yeah. So that's kind of the impact that we want to make with the work. <laughs> I love that. I, w- I want to actually uh, wrap up a little but start by asking both of you guys, is there anybody that you'd like to honor who uh, has not survived or anybody or anything that you can think of that you'd like to talk about in terms of, you know, back of mind that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think like with this question, I don't know anyone personally that has died due to violence. However, our entire work Everything that we do every day, the people that didn't survive always make it into the conversation. Even when we call each other survivors, 
it's with the understanding that we are the ones that did survive and, and certain people didn't. And so I think we have to honor those people every day and within our work and like our dedications say that. Um, I think specifically for me, I think that there are a lot of people within trans communities that die every year um, and it's becoming a large issue. And it's mostly, you know, black trans women that are being killed uh, in terms of whether it's stranger or whether it's interpersonal violence. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're trans. And so I think that's one thing that I kind of wanted to honor. I think that a lot of people, if they don't have a relationship with the community, like the trans community or the queer community, I don't think that this is taken up too much. And so I think that honoring those people and honoring uh, trans identified folks that have died, I think is something that's important to me. I want to actually follow off on, on what Shalina is saying about certain marginalized uh, women, certain marginalized communities whose bodies are somehow viewed as not as important. And so when you look at um, the missing and murdered indigenous women uh, numbers, when you look at uh, black women who were murdered, missing and murdered black women. And to say that every life is important, everybody's life is important. It is important that the community recognizes that and actually does something to actually show that. Because the the level of anti-black racism and the way that permeates the criminal legal system, the way it permeates family courts, it's systemic in child welfare Yes. Um, anti-indigenous sentiment, the way that permeates. So that when a black woman or an indigenous woman is murdered, the media attention that it gets is nowhere near if it was a, a you know a young, white, able-bodied um, woman who was murdered. So I, I'm, as a black woman, living in a world in the West where some people might look at me and, and think that, you know, if what happened to me is not as important as what happened to Shalina, who is white. But the reality is that we are all important and we all need to show up for each other. I said that to say this as well, that I know women who have been murdered. A couple of years ago, a young black girl, Bridget Taki, was murdered by her ex. And I was I didn't know her personally, mm-hmm. but once when she was murdered and I was looped in by the media to speak about violence against women, I got to know her brother. I got. To, I spoke to her mother. It brought home to me again how it could be. It could have been me, right? It could have been any of us. And it actually, when I talk about my anger and what that type of stuff does, it it, it wins you, right? It takes the wind out of you for a minute. Yeah. But then I had to get up and think. If I, I can't stay in bed and mourn. Yeah. I have to fight as I mourn, right? We have to we have to continue to do what we're doing because if we don't, the guy that killed 22 people, that would be a, an everyday occurrence. And yes. it actually is because in Canada, every two and a half days, a woman is murdered by her intimate partner. Why are we not outraged? Why is the rest of society I agree. not outraged by this? I don't always look at sort of the, the micro- but I never lose sight of it because these are individual women who had mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children and friends who love them. And somebody else has taken their life. And sometimes we, we have to go back to the micro, have to go back to the individual and, and, and say that name her, right? Say her name, name yeah. her, 
talk about what she did. I don't want to know about his his hobbies. I don't want to know what the community thought about him. He doesn't deserve that airspace. She, she has to be centered. I'm mindful all the time about, as Shilina said, why we do this work is because we don't have the luxury to sit and wait. Somebody has to do it. We survivors are the ones who, who, who are doing it. I love that. And on that note, I would love to have you ladies back again to continue this conversation because I feel like there's so much more for us to talk about. So I will invite you back for another episode. But for now, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this is going to be impactful for the listeners who join us for that token of hope and to understand other people's stories. And um, I'm going to also be including resources to help people that are in the GTA um, and those who can utilize services from women at the center. So take a look at the notes of the podcast and you'll be able to see contact information for NECA and Shalina there as well. Thanks so much, ladies, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy, for having us on. And we'll see you on our podcast. Can't wait. Can't wait. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories. Today's episode was brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. We look forward to hearing from you again. Feel free to leave comments and suggestions in the message area below or to reach out to our team if you feel that you are a good candidate for appearing on Calm After the Storm.